Welcome to the Good Growing Podcast. I am Chris Enroth, horticulture educator with University of Illinois Extension, coming at you from a beautiful Macomb, Illinois. And we have got a great show for you today, folks. Uh, we have Mary Fisher, horticulture educator, with us today. But before we get to Mary, let's introduce our co-host with us every single week. We got Katie Parker, local foods educator in Adams County. Hello, Katie. Hey there, Chris. How are you doing? No complaints here. I am uh, I, I'm super happy and a little bit warmer than usual as we were discussing. It's actually kind of hot right now. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think I, I turned our heat off at our house yesterday. I think I saw our thermostat get up to like 77. Yes. So that's incredible. Yep. The windows are open. The fans are on mm -hmm. in my house. Yeah. Yep. And so I, I don't know if you're, you're, like our household, once the heat's off, it's off, you know, you're not allowed to yeah. turn it back on. <laughs> I hate to turn the air on. I love the windows. House plants went outside yesterday. It was like, mm -hmm. oh my gosh, obviously they're not going to stay forever, but uh, it was just nice. Oh yeah. Give I, them some fresh sunlight. I am just absolutely loving this, getting the plants outside and giving us, it's a little bit more room now in the house. So <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And, and someone who I know needs a little bit more room in his house because he's just loaded with more house plants than I can believe. I, I lost count, Ken. Uh, Ken Johnson, horticulture educator in Jacksonville. Hey, Ken, how's the house plants? Still on side. So we've got <laughs> eight or nine plumeria trees. So those are once they go out, they're staying out. I don't want to drag those in and out. So I'm going to wait a little bit longer before we're in the clear because those are a pain bringing them in and out. Some of them are eight feet tall <laughs> so it's difficult wow. to get them through the doors <laughs> so i mean how long are you planning on growing these trees i mean are they going to be around till you're retired you want to be hauling those around that long well they'll probably get too big at that point they're going to they're stay as long as we can fit them in the house we got a couple awesome. that we're we're getting close to we're gonna have to we may just have to spend the winter outside and <laughs> be done with them or see what find a new home they for survive <laughs> You could rehome them. Yeah, that would be nice. I'm not sure where though. You could build a greenhouse. I could. <laughs> I'll work That's on, on my list. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, not to uh, delay things any further, let's introduce our special guests for today. So we have Mary Fisher, horticulture educator. Hi, Mary. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Ah. Uh, I, it's just been a, it's, it's been a joy. I'm so happy to be chatting with everyone here about gardening because right now is the time to do it. I mean, right? I mean, this is like, I think what every person who enjoys working outside every single year, this is it for them. This is our thrill. Um, I would agree with you. There's nothing better than turning over some soil and smelling that fresh, rich earth and getting your hands dirty. Oh, absolutely. I I couldn't agree more. So, uh, Mary, I have a question. Let's, you know, we're, we're going to talk about uh, some of the youth initiatives that you're doing and uh, some kind of educational items, but we can't start. We, I mean, we have to start knowing more about you first. So, Mary, I think uh, some question I, I like to ask folks that are new to the show, why do you like plants? I think it's just in my blood. Um, my grandfather was the manager of a banana plantation in Honduras. Um, he didn't return to the States until probably the thirties. Um, so he had a real love of plants. Um, being from Southeast Louisiana, 
we had huge gardens every year. We had a spring garden and a fall garden. And while we had to raise, you know, plants for food, I preferred flowers than other things. So when I went back to college for my master's degree, um, I wanted to go into plant and soil. Um, so I took all the ID classes I possibly could. And I just like the whole aspect of creating a real inviting atmosphere using plants. Because, you know, you can get so much, even if it's monochromatic, even if it's all green, as long as it's different shades of green, different um, textures, it can create a really um, engaging atmosphere that's very restful. And I think that's what we all need. Oh, definitely. And and you know, based on your accent, you mentioned Louisiana. Um, you are based in Southern Illinois for U of I Extension. Um, so I, I know that in terms of plant materials, you know, I might be more familiar with what's happening up here in West Central Illinois, but uh, you have more of a, a local knowledge of Southern plants. Is that correct? That's correct. Um, I'm actually in Effingham, so now I'm in Central Illinois. So I'm going to have to learn the plants in this region, but I would say we're probably here right on the cusp of that transitional zone again. Um, so a lot of the plants will do okay here, but what could be a perennial down in Southern part of the state may only be like a hardy annual here if, if that. Um, so you have to be really careful. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes that people make um, they just see something and they go, oh, I want that, you know, I want that plant. And then they bring it home and, you know, it hardly lasts a year. And, and they'll look at the tag. Well, it says it's, you know, it's perennial and it should grow in this zone. But what I've heard you and what I've heard some other educators talk about is it's better if you can buy your plants from within 200 miles of the region with which you live in because then those plants are more acclimatized to your region, not coming from someplace like Florida, where they go, what did you do? You brought me up here, it's cold. You know, I wanna go back south. Um, so um, I think that's a real big difference that maybe people don't always look at what's really the best plant, right plant for right place. Um, and when you talk to the individuals at like some of these big box stores and the garden centers, they say, well, we don't have anything to say. They just ship them and we just unpack them. I know they're doing it for their bottom line, but it seems like um, they could apply a little bit more scientific knowledge to it than what they do. I've seen crepe myrtle for sale up here. So uh, <laughs> it, it doesn't, they don't all die. Some do. Some just die back down to the roots every year. So I guess it's almost like a almost like an herbaceous plant uh, in some parts of the state. So right. Uh, but but you don't, I would say if you're trying to sell a new gardener on on gardening, definitely want to set them up for success and don't sell them a, a zone seven plant in a zone five world. So. <laughs> and it may not be what they want to hear, but I think in the long run. They would appreciate your honesty 
because they're not having to go out and spend a whole bunch more money to replace what they bought that didn't work. And once you get a little more experience, then you can get get into your zone envy and start planting stuff you shouldn't. And bring them inside every winter. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. So Mary, one thing yeah, you've been working on is a, uh, with the Master Naturalist program, kind of creating a youth Master Naturalist program. And it's something I've I've kind of heard whispers and hints of, but I don't really don't know much about it. So kind of how long are, are you guys along with that Youth Master Naturalist program? And again, what can we expect out of that when it's up and running? We've met several times. We're still in the basic planning. We have a, a good framework. Um, Indiana State has um, a nice uh teen master naturalist program. Uh, we decided to focus on the teens because um, at one of our council meetings, um, some teens came to the meeting and they said, you have all these programs for, um, you know, like our parents or our grandparents and our younger siblings, but what do you have for us? And it made me start thinking, that's right, what do we have for this particular age group? Um, before I came to um, U of I, I also worked as um, a literacy coordinator for Ag in the Classroom. So I had a lot of knowledge from there, plus simple fact, I love plants. And um, I thought, yeah, we need to have something for the teens. Um, the Master Naturals program that we have here in Illinois is just absolutely fantastic. There's so much diversity in the state that I think it's almost difficult to do it within the time frame that they set it up. So I got together with uh, some other like-minded uh, educators. Um, I talked to Chris Evans and said, hey, could we do this? And he said, absolutely. Um, one of the things that we want to do with this program is we want to make sure it's accessible to all students. And I think that's what we've realized in the past is that some of the programs maybe were geared for um, parents that were able to maybe afford to send their kids to two or three camps over the summer. And some um, are not, especially if you have several children. Um, and I certainly can understand that um, having been a mother of eight. So we want to make it affordable. We're planning on getting sponsors. We wanna have either sponsors or we want to have scholarships available for the students. But what the other thing that we focused on is we want to create this into something that may be able to work into a job with like either a city park or a park district or even like the US Forest Service where the teens who are going through this, they will all be required to do some volunteer hours. They can come back the following year and get an advanced um, certificate. And we believe that this could potentially work into a job. Um, you know, we are the stewards of this earth and we need to leave it in good shape for those that are coming behind us and our own children and our grandchildren. And what better way to do this than to engage the youth that are gonna be the next generation stewards to uh, respect it and to protect it for their children and their grandchildren. So we're hoping to have this 
up and ready to launch uh, in the fall. Um, we're working on a couple of different options. We would, of course, like it to be face-to-face, -face, but as we all know, you know, COVID really threw a curveball into everything, and, and you just don't know what's going to happen. So we're um, considering, because a lot of teens do have to work, and they may be really interested in doing this, but they have to have a job. So we're thinking of having it face-to-face -face and as a hybrid alternative for those who can't meet with us face-to-face. -face. And we think this is going to be a really good program. I think it's what's really needed in the state uh, with our, our youth. Um, and the other educators feel the same way. So um, we're gonna be meeting in just the next week or so and take the next step into putting this together. So now that school is out for the summer or we're getting closer to school getting over and parents will be looking for activities to keep their kids engaged, do you have any suggestions on easy and inexpensive activities that parents can do with their kids? And then two, we won't tell the kids, but maybe uh, something that could even be educational. Since I'm a Hort educator, there's some really cool things that they could do that could even possibly start a little garden, um, either have their children plant seeds, even if it's only in a pot. Um, you can produce quite a bit in a pot. Um, get them interested in it. Get them interested in like, well, how long is it going to take to come up? Let's, let's make a journal where we say, okay, we planted it today. We watered it. What was the weather like? and help them to be something that I think a lot of us have forgotten to be is very observant and see what changes progress. Maybe you'll plant some extra ones. Maybe you'll even plant some in a jar where you have the seed close to the edge of the jar so they can see the radical coming out. And then they can see the seed starting to come out with that hypocotyl. So they can look at the different things and learn more about how that seed ends up becoming, say, a bean, or how that seed ends up becoming maybe a basil plant, um, and get them interested in that. Now, if they want something more adventurous, then they could go out to um, maybe a state park. They could start looking at some of our local trees, and we have an abundance of trees here in Illinois. Um, U of I also puts out a really nice book, Trees of Illinois, um, you could start with real basic things like opposite and alternate and go out and look for the trees that have those different types of leaves and pick them and then sit down with your children and start looking at, okay, well, what, what kind of a leaf is this? You know, okay, this one was an opposite, this one was an alternate. Also, and I have to see if um, the IDNR, which is the Illinois Department of Natural Resources, still publishes it, but there's um, a brochure that I have a couple copies of um, called Illinois Trees, an Identification and an Activity Book. And this is geared just for um, young children, and they would have a really good time. They could do uh, tree rubbings of the bark, or they could even lay that leaf down and do a rubbing of the leaf to preserve it. Um, I've even heard that some will actually take the leaves and put it between um, 
maybe some sheets of uh, wax paper and then using that iron will iron over it so it kind of like seals it and protects it. Um, you can use heavy books and you can make your own a leaf press and you can make um, your own journal. Maybe you can find some twigs. Uh, twigs are a very good uh, winter ID project. Um, I recently saw one put that Chris Evans hosted, uh, which was just absolutely phenomenal about winter tree ID. Um, and so if you could start looking at different kinds of buds and then go out with a book, um, your kids would probably have fun, uh, especially if you find a pawpaw um, because they're so nice and fuzzy. Um, and then, you know, rub the leaves in your hands. Pawpaw leaves smell like diesel fuel. You know, if you go to a sassafras, it's going to smell like Fruit Loops. So these are really simple, fun ways to learn more about uh, the environment around them. I think we forget that kids are so curious and the satisfied that, mm -hmm. I mean, it's so important for them to be able to observe the world. So I, those are fantastic ideas. Thank you, Mary. I am got some things to do with my kids this weekend. Yeah, I'll have to shoot you a picture of this, uh, the cover of this booklet. I, I found it when I was at home going through stuff and I'm like, yeah, I think I'm gonna bring those back. And so I, I only found two of them. I'll, I'll tell you how old one was. Uh, it has Rod Bulgoyevich. So um, <laughs> yeah, but I, I mean, it's really, really simple. And the, the kids could color it and um, I think it would be a great thing to do. But um, you know, what I've observed only over a long period of time and through reading uh, books written by people, gosh, way back when, is that the only reason we know what we know today, uh, and because back then they didn't have Google, is <laughs> people were very observant and they wrote it down in a journal. You know, how, how did we know comets came around every so often? Well, someone was was making note of what was happening. And, yep. and that's what we've lost, I think, as, you know, we're, we're too much, oh, let's ask Google, instead of observing it for yourself. And I think that's where we lose touch with uh, our environment around us. And I think that's how we can take it for granted is by not being a part of it, you know, keeping ourselves away from it. But if we're part of it, we learn so much um, I know when I was doing the Master Naturalist course, um, went out by Alto Pass and found these little fossils called Archimedes screws. And I was like, and, and they would have existed in an ocean. And I'm like, oh my gosh, look at these things, you know? And, and here they are in Illinois. You know, that's just fascinating to me. Well, in Southern Illinois, you'll see every once in a while, if you're observant and maybe you got to move a few leaves around, you'll see sandstone with a pattern of preserved sand from the waves that used to be there when the, the shore of the ocean came up into Southern Illinois. Oh, exactly. And um, I have uh, probably 24 tons of river rock that came out of a, a pit that they dredged over on Route 3 um, out from Murfreesboro. And 
I know people probably think I'm insane, but I like to go out there and sit in those rocks and just look at what you can find. And I've found all kinds of fossil remains, you know, whether it's um, an animal or um, whether it's some kind of a fern. Um, I've even found a piece of petrified wood in there. So I find that's really interesting. And, and it's like, wow, this is in a rock, you know? And so I would be like, you know, I would have to move out of my house if I saved all the rocks I found. I think every single, I mean, at least I could say from my youth, I don't know, Katie, Ken, from your youth, I was a budding geologist with the amount of rocks that I would just like analyze and just like look at and collect. My oldest, our oldest is big into to rocks, He's getting geodes and cracking them open and collecting random rocks and stuff. So, The other thing I found recently was some coral in, yeah. in that, yeah, they're like little tiny pieces, probably about the size of a quarter, but they're coral and, and they're almost crystalline, almost, they're, they're very sparkly. Mary, last week we had Dennis Bowman on and he was talking about drones and agriculture. And I know from our discussions we've had in the past, you know a thing or two about drones and are you actually a light, are you a licensed drone pilot? Yes, I am. Oh, cool. So, so how would you like involve drones in some of this, whether it's master naturalist youth stuff or just maybe training youth in general? Like how, how could we involve this technology? Because Dennis got us all excited for corn and soybeans, but I mean, there's so, I, this feels like it's just a small step in a bigger world. Uh, yes, it is. Um, it's, you know, a huge, <laughs> it's going to be a huge step. Um, what we are going to implement here in Unit 21, we're going to be working with 4-H and we're going to be using their curriculum called Quads Away. Um, we've already purchased, I believe it's 14 drones, which students will be able to program um, so they will have um, their, and that's using a program called Scratch, where they'll be able to tell the drone, I want you to fly forward, I want you to turn left, I want you to go 10 feet, I want you to turn right, I want you to go up, I want you to go down, and I want you to come back. So they'll be able to actually control the drone, and we'll be using iPads um, to tell the drone what to do. So this is just one tiny step in getting students interested more in STEM. Um, so, you know, science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. And, and if you throw the A in there, some people put arts, I put agriculture. Um, also search and rescue, um, buildings, uh, any kind of building inspection, um, bridge inspection where it's not safe enough to send individuals. Um, they've actually done studies where they compared what it would cost to have two individuals inspecting, and it was a bridge, and what it would cost to have um, them to go out with a drone. And it was like a thousand dollars difference because the drone can do it so much better. You can get that drone right up close and see everything. And with the drones, the, the, technology and the cameras is incredible. Um, some of the discoveries 
um, that they have because it has LIDAR. You can uh, equip a drone with LIDAR, which is a light detection and ranging. Um, you're able to see through canopy cover, to see what's below the canopy. And that's how they've made a lot of the discoveries in Central America of different ruins of different villages that are massive, but because of all the jungle um, foliage, they couldn't tell it. Um, so this has a lot of potential value, both to geologists, uh, they've used them off the coast of Florida and found where there had been settlements that were related to some of the shells in that that they found in Cahokia. So they know that there was some kind of, of transportation and, and trade between Florida and here. Um, like you were talking about with um, the crops, um, you're able to fly over a field, you can tell uh, what the field is deficient in. The drones are so accurate between the drone and the precision ag equipment, you can tell where to put what amount of nutrients that plant needs, and you're not just doing the whole field. So you're much more efficient with your expenses. You're gonna be able to cut down on them. Um, so drones are here to stay. Um, I think the biggest concern that I have are that a lot of people are gonna blow off the rules and regulations. Um, the FAA wants to have everyone who flies a drone needs to pass an airman's knowledge test, uh, which is basic knowledge of what you need to know. And I agree with them. I think um, everyone should have that. Um, the other thing that I think a lot of people um, don't realize is <clears throat> when you step out your back door and you have your drone on the ground and your drone takes off, whether you are a foot or you're 10 feet up, you have just entered national airspace. So, you know, you're going to want to know what the rules and regulations are regarding that. And so that's what I hope we will be able to uh, pass on some of that to some of these students that would be interested in possibly pursuing a career um, with a drum. Uh, I think it's a, a real amazing fast growing field. Well, that was some interesting information about the youth master naturalist program and some things that we can do with our kiddos in our, uh, whether it's in our backyard, in the house with some house plants, growing some plants, or maybe heading out to a, a local park. Uh, but we are also a question and answer show. And so we do have questions that come into extension offices around the state uh, through various means, whether it's from a telephone, an email, whether uh, somebody uh, sends us smoke signals and we interpret those. There's lots of different ways that people ask us questions. So uh, Mary, would you mind helping us out, you know, uh, with some of these questions that came in today? Oh, absolutely. Excellent. So, well, Ken, I think you are on deck here to kick us off for this week. So if you wouldn't mind starting. Will do. All right. So our first question, uh, we've got somebody who's seeing lots of escaped ornamental pear trees along their, their woodland and they're flowering this time of year. Should we cut them down now? And how would, would they go about to, um, getting rid of them? Ornamental pears are invasive, in my opinion. 
Um, what we usually do, um, at least at my house, is we've started cutting them down. Um, while on one hand, they do provide those little brown uh, fruits for animals, whether it's birds or um, if it's low enough deer, um, it still takes over from our native plants. So we cut them down. Um, and not only do we cut them down, sometimes if we have to, then we'll use a 50-50 glyphosate and water and I put a dye in it and I'll spray over um, the cut root um, to make sure I know which ones I've already um, taken care of. Um, and then I look for an alternative uh, to it. Um, we had a, a, well, before we knew better, we were transplanting them. And now that we know better, we're not. So we're just taking them out and putting in, you know, native shrub or tree. Mm -hmm. I've planted probably a hundred of these things doing landscaping. So, and I, I like how you say invasive in your opinion, because legally you can buy these things still, you can plant them all over. <laughs> and, and that's so. the sad thing. It's, it's sort of like the left hand doesn't know what the right hand's doing. Um, and, and we've had this discussion um, before in the, horticulture education group about a lot of these plants being brought here for horticultural purposes. And then it's just like, they just go wild. Um, and it's sort of like if you have reptiles or something like that, that you bring or Japanese stiltgrass. Um, and, and it just explodes because there's nothing to keep it in control. We have to kind of correct our own mistake. Uh, so with like me and Ken, we have to sort of like put our heads down a little bit because our title is horticulture educator. But Katie, your local foods, you can just say, ah, not me. <laughs> nope. Look at those guys. Not me. <laughs> and not sure. only are they invasive, they smell terrible. Yes, they do. I agree. Boiled crawfish or boiled seafood. Mm. <laughs> so our next question is, we've heard a lot about night blooming plants and how it may help pollinators like moths. What do you recommend? They're looking for um, plants for both full sun and full shade landscape beds. Well, I'll take a stab at that one because I just wrote an article for the Gardener's Corner that's gonna be coming out pretty shortly on moonlight gardens. And one thing I'd like to say is it kind of depends. It's gonna depend on what kind of flowers do you prefer? Um, you could put something like a night blooming jasmine or a night blooming phlox in there. You're going to want to have things that like hawk moths are attracted to because if you think about it, you see butterflies during the day, the moths come out at night. So you're going to want to provide something that they like and that is open. Um, also, uh, four o'clocks, which smell absolutely wonderful, um, will bloom all evening long. And then during the daylight, they'll close up. You know, they'll start opening up in late afternoon. Um, maybe you want to put something like um, a moonflower, like an Apomia alba. Um, they also have a nice long, they're, they remind you of uh, the devil's trumpets, but they're not the tourists, so they're not a poisonous. 
um, something that's going to attract the different moth species, maybe even bats. For one little piece of information that some people may not know, um, something we all like and probably just had um, in Easter baskets was chocolate. So cacao is also pollinated by uh, bats and by midges. Um, the out of a thousand flowers, you may only get three that are pollinated. So to me, it's amazing that we even have chocolate when you think about it. But since most of these plants grow right along, you know, about 10 degrees either side of the equator, they're constantly blooming. So that's our saving grace is that they're always blooming so they could be um, pollinated. Um, you know, you can put in other things. Uh, there's hostas that will tolerate some sunlight. So even though you have full sun, you could put out some hostas. You could even put out zinnias. Um, you could have marigolds. So you can have a nice contrast in your flowers uh, from sun to, to partial shade to shade. Some of them that do bloom at night. Um, the biggest thing is you're looking for color. Um, the, the bright reds and things like that look good in bright light. Uh, white in bright sunlight is just washed out. But if you have white or light pink or light purple uh, when the, you have moonlight or whether you have some artificial lighting, it's gonna just stand out much more than in a bright sun. So that's where you're having some of the same plants, but you're just looking more for a color. Um, you could even have Artemisia in there. Uh, you could have Dusty Miller, Lamb's Ears. You're also gonna mix your textures with your flower colors. Uh, so that would be my um, take on it. Um, also, if you want something for fragrance, um, Dianthus, um, some Calament, Angel's Trumpets, uh, some of the Elysium, um, the flowering tobacco or Nicotiana. Um, so again, I think a lot of it's going to have to depend on personal choice. After reading your article, Mary, I became inspired. I wanted a moonlight garden too. So I have several, oh, maybe a flat's worth of moonflower <laughs> seeds started in my basement right now. So I might have extra if anybody wants. Well, that's to. good. <laughs> yeah, but I'm excited to get this stuff planted. I, I, it's, it's going to go on a trellis right by our front porch. And so I am super excited to, to sit out there in the evening with the moonflower vine. And so at my house in Louisiana, I just put a jasmine at one end of my porch, which is like 45 feet long. And I'm going to put up a trellis so it can just climb up the trellis. And then um, in the evening, that the scent will just blow right down the the length of the porch and, and scent it really well. And something that you may be familiar with, Chris, is a sweet olive, which is an evergreen. I don't believe it could grow outside anywhere here, but it has a real tiny little kind of creamy white flower that smells absolutely wonderful. All right, so our next question um, is about sweet potatoes. So we got somebody who would like to grow sweet potatoes this year, but they have no idea where to start. They would also like to know what a sweet potato slip is. 
Well, to me, the simplest explanation would be one of those sweet potatoes that you stick in the jar of water that you stick up on your um, window and then it starts sprouting and it makes all these nice vines. Well, when you cut those vines, that's what creates your slip and that's what growers do. Um, you can also do your sweet potatoes like that. Um, I have seen where some people will take the slip and uh, put it in some soil just to get a few roots and then they'll transplant it out. You don't always have to do that. Uh, but you can keep your own slips growing like that. You could just let keep letting that vine grow, snip them off, let the vine grow some more, snip some more off. Um, so that way it kind of depends. Um, and Chris and I were talking before uh, the podcast started about growing them in containers. And I've seen down south where they will actually grow them in uh, the big totes with the, the rope handles and will put a trellis on the back so the vines can climb up the trellis and then you can control what type of soil they're in. So basically you don't have to bend over and you can just harvest them right out of there. And Mary, you're talking about deer damage, especially in Southern Illinois and Southern parts of the US. Yes, um, deer really like sweet potato slips. Um, in a field of sweet potatoes, you would think someone went through overnight with um, a weed eater and just cut them all down. Uh, they just really seem to enjoy them, sort of like oak, first oak leaves on an oak tree too. Um, so you're gonna wanna try to make sure that you protect your, um, if you have a, a field of them, you have something to kind of deter them. So I can confirm that groundhogs like sweet potatoes too. We grew them one oh. year, groundhogs came in and mowed them down a couple of times before we <laughs> finally took care of the groundhogs. You just started feeding them more sweet potatoes, right? <laughs> so then how many, um, how do you know how many sweet potato slips to plant? Like what can you expect for yield from one slip? That's a good question. That's what, so I was having this very phone conversation earlier about container planted sweet potatoes. And we were talking about spacing and the size of container. Now, the nice thing about sweet potatoes is wherever that vine grows up and then comes down and touches the ground, if there's a node right there, it will send down roots. You'll get a whole nother little uh, spread of sweet potato uh, uh, possibilities there. So, I mean, in one 10 gallon container, you could plant one slip and potentially root along that whole vine over the course of the year um, and get multiple little sweet potato clusters of sweet potatoes. But because Illinois and the farther north you go, the shorter season you get, you're not gonna get very big ones really. Um, and you know, the longer season you get, you can grow them as big as my head. I mean, they can get humongous, um, but usually, you know, I like harvesting them when they're a bit smaller. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I would expect when I pull out the main place where I put my first slip, I expect to get a big honking sweet potato and then several kind of medium size coming off of that and then a few smaller ones from there so it's it's sort of a, a, a whole graded range difference i don't know if anyone's had a different experience with that but that's where i've i've seen well what i've seen is you can get somewhere from probably up here maybe three to five but if you're farther south where the growing season's longer maybe 12 to a slip 
So, you know, it just varies. And I, and I honestly agree with you, Chris. I think the smaller ones um, taste a little bit sweeter than the big ones. And I'll add for the slips, I've seen them every once in a while in garden centers and stuff where they kind of have them in the, the six pack cells. So that may be somewhere too in, in garden centers or some of the box stores may have them too. How do our ornamental sweet potato vines differ from sweet sweet potato slips? Are they the same species? Ipomia batatas, is that it? Ipomia batatas is, is the sweet potato vine. Mm-hmm. I think they're related, but I know that the ornamental does produce like a little potato, but I don't think they're, I don't think that they're edible. That you probably harvest them and grow your own like ornamental sweet potato vines for the future years. Don't you think? I think you could. But yeah, it's not. Only one way to find out. There's too many experiments. I don't have time for all these experiments. (laughs) I'll do this. Well, (laughs) I love ornamental sweet potato vines. You can eat ornamental sweet potatoes. But it just probably wouldn't produce very highly. No, no, and it's probably kind of sweet, um, but you're just, you know, if you really want the nice orange ones, you're probably going to plant those. Well, I ate hostas last year. This year, I guess it's time to eat some ornamental sweet potatoes. (laughs) Um, So our next question is about an old oak tree so they have an old oak with branches resting on a power wire they just trimmed it and realized it's probably too late in the year this all was clean it's never been used on an oak before the branches were four to six inches in diameter Um, after this person cut it they're worried that they messed up and if so is there something I can do about it I don't know or he says I I know they don't recommend coating with coating sealer. I don't know why I think about these things after I do them. <laughs> it's uh, that happens a lot sometimes. Ken, yeah, I told you not to be cutting trees like this. <laughs> why do you keep sending these questions in? You're not a bird. You can't just sit on the power lines and cut trees. What is like, okay, so I don't know what everybody else thinks, but I was not thinking of timing of pruning when I first saw this question. What was every, uh, I mean, Mary, when you hear, I saw a limb sitting on a power line and oops, I pruned it outside of the pruning window for oak. Where's the oops here really? You're I like, mean, you're it, alive. when it's on a power line. <laughs> <laughs> yes. oh That's goodness. when you call your utility company and say, I have a tree limb on a power line. Mm-hmm. That would be and- my first suggestion. Yes. I, I mean, that's like, I, alarms went off in my head and maybe out loud. I'm not sure, but um, I had a friend who had a tree limb resting on a power line and he called his power company. They were out there that next morning. Um, they take the line down because um, they, I guess in this case, they weren't going to cut the limb, but they will take the line down. They ran an extra supply line for them um, and they said, call us. When you're done, he cut the limb, he called him, they came back out that same day, reconnected his power. And he said it was the easiest process. So please everybody, don't trim limbs on power lines. That's a job for the power company. Since he's already done it. Um, some of the things is yeah, we recommend you don't wanna use um, 
tree paint or stuff like that. Kind of the one exception to that rule is with oaks. If you're going to be pruning them kind of outside that dormant season, um, you can apply some wound paint or some like latex house paint, something like that onto those wounds um, to keep sap beetles off their sap beetles or what will spread um, oak wilt. And you want to do that immediately after you make that cut because those beetles can find those branches within 10 minutes sometimes. So it's not a cut it and I'll do it later. It's cut it and put it on right away. So if you have a situation where you, we have a storm come through and, and you got some broken branches you need to remove from an oak tree, you can cut, you can still cut those. And then this would be the kind of the one situation where you could um, paint your tree branches. And typically after five days, maybe a week, those wounds aren't going to be attractive to those beetles anymore. So if it's, if it's an older wound, you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's basically while that, that cut is still kind of seeping, there's still sap flow in there until that gets sealed off. It's going to be attractive to those sap beetles. But this time of year, you know, we want to try to avoid pruning oaks at all costs and until we get back into the dormant season this winter. All right. And our last question. Um, so we've got somebody, they want to know um, how to reduce leggy tomato plants. Um, do they do that by providing more light? Um, if, they're, if they're planting multiple seeds per pot, is that making the, the tomatoes taller? Um, is that one of the reasons why that can be taller? Um, or is competition a factor? Well, Ken, we talked about this. Um, and I, I, I know we had talked about give them more light. So I think that's like the prime thing you could do. Um, but I, I have found, so sometimes the common recommendation for planting tomato seeds or a lot of different seeds is plant a few per pot or container cell. But we're not supposed to usually let those grow up. Um, usually we have to thin those out. So uh, usually that involves taking a little scissors or something and culling the herd, as we should say. And um, it's, it's hard to do, I know, for many gardeners to sacrifice the little uh, baby tomatoes, but uh, you know, making sure that they have enough room and space so that they don't have to compete over that light, which is a critical resource when they're in seedling stage. I think that would be, that'd be my number one recommendation. Anything, anything else though? Yeah, I'd say more light and yep, thin them out. Probably gonna be the two best ways to prevent that. Yeah, I, I agree with both of you. I mean, if you think about it, it's a plant. Where's the plant gonna get its food from sunlight? You know, it's gonna convert it through photosynthesis. So it needs to be in the light to do that. And when they get leggy, it's because they're trying to seek that light. And one nice thing about tomatoes is that if you have a leggy plant, you can still plant that, just plant it in a trench. And unlike most plants, they'll send out roots along that stem. So you can get away with planting them deeper. And some people will do that on purpose anyway. So they get a larger root system. So just because you have leggy plants doesn't mean you need to get, in the case of tomatoes, you don't have to get rid of them. You can still plant those out and be pretty successful with them. And that's a good point, Ken, that, you know, you can just put them in the trench so they can have a really substantial root system because, you know, when, depending on whether it's a determinate or an indeterminate tomato plant, they can get pretty big. And if they have a, a real small root system, you're gonna definitely have to have that plant probably staked 
if you don't want your tomatoes on the ground. Learn that the hard way. It's important to stake your tomatoes. They get diseases, they'll split. The vine will just split over when it gets too heavy and windy. Well, that was a lot of great information. Uh, so Mary Fisher, horticulture educator, thank you so much for joining us today on the show. Thank you so much for inviting me and having me. I enjoyed it. Well, the Good Growing Podcast is produced by Winnie Ferguson and edited by me, Chris Enroth. Uh, special thanks to Ken and Katie for being with us every single week. Ken, Katie, thank you very much. Thanks, Mary, for joining us. And it's always good to see you, Chris and Ken. Thanks, Katie. Yes, thank you, Mary. And thank you, Chris and Katie. Let's do this again next week. And we shall be doing this again next week. Uh, we will be talking uh, more gardening topics. Until then, listeners, thank you for doing what you do best, and that is listening. Or if you're watching us on YouTube, watching. And as always, keep on growing.